also inspired Animal Kingdom. So there you go. They're worthless and they're predatory and they're no good and they're mostly dead, but they have inspired a couple of works of art. It's very easy to summon up lines and scenes from it and they're just unforgettable. I think a generation of crime writers have been influenced by it. The only good thing about Dennis Allen is that mostly he killed people that were nearly as bad as himself, with some exceptions. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. Today, listeners, we're going to have a rough guide to killing time over the summer break. Most of us get off on holidays at this time of year and we lie around, particularly on wet days when you can't go to the beach, and we either read or we watch things on the screen or on one of the many screens around the place. And for that reason, my colleague Mark Butler and myself and various others have got our heads together and we cobbled together a few of our favourite books, films, TV series from the present and the recent past and also, in some cases, from the quite distant past. In no particular order, I'm going to walk listeners through a few of our selections, knowing that for every one we put up, there will be at least another two out there that we could have mentioned. So with that proviso, let's start. Let's start with a great crowd favourite in this country, Blue Murder. Now, this was a journey through the wild west of crime and corruption of 1980s Sydney, but it still stands up today. It revolves around the relationship between the legendary rogue cop Roger Rogerson, currently serving life for uh, murder, and a gangster called Nettie Smith who served a lot of time in jail before he died not long ago of a long-standing condition and he died not before time. He's a man who probably would have been better off dead a long time ago. These two rogues dominated the Sydney underworld in many ways for years, they and others who rubbed shoulders with them because they were the nexus of the great link between corruption, corrupt cops and corrupt politicians and so on, and active criminals in Sydney particularly. But their tentacles reached out to other states. You know, Roger Rogerson could organise things in Brisbane or Melbourne or whatever and sometimes did. Now, it's well known, I think, that Richard Roxburgh acted the part of a young Roger Rogerson in Blue Murder, and it was a great role. Roxburgh is a great actor, but he really nailed the Rogerson role, and he made him an extremely charming, funny, good-looking, good-company guy who would kill you as quick as look at you. It was a terrific piece of acting that caught the real man very well. I have known Roger Rogerson a little bit over the years when he was out of jail and he's a most entertaining person, highly intelligent man, could have probably been a success at anything he did, very organised mind, better judges than I am, said that Rogerson as a young man reminded them of a young Don Bradman. He had that sort of gimlet-eyed clear-eyed, intelligent toughness that we associate with the great batsman. But in the case of Rogerson, he used his powers for evil as well as for good, mainly to enrich himself or his uh, crooked mates. Blue Murder was just a wonderful series. Uh, It also starred Tony Martin as uh, Nettie Smith. 
and several other landmark actors, not all of them still with us. One's Gary Sweet, who is still with us, the late Bill Hunter, Peter Phelps, Steve Bastoni, and the late, great John Hargraves, another fine actor. It was originally shown on the ABC in 1995, and I'd suggest that if you leave aside the fact that telephones and cars and some musical tastes have altered, it's as good today as it was then. Now, for something completely up to date, there is a new show called Mr. In Between. I wrote for the paper for a guide to summer reading and summer viewing that occasionally something turns up that's original, different and timeless. It happened a lifetime ago with Callan, which starred Edward Woodward as a really tough working class English spook. It happened with The Sopranos, of course, which is really the Shakespeare of crime series. It happened with The Wire and with Breaking Bad. These are the TV equivalent of literature. But now Australia has joined that list, I think, with Mr In Between. This is the brainchild of a guy called Scott Ryan, a very idiosyncratic actor and screenwriter who, as a child, might have overdosed on Elmore Leonard and Chopper and Tarantino because a long time ago, when you know he should have been out surfing or something, he invented in probably his bedroom on his laptop a suburban hitman, a guy he called Ray Shoesmith. And Ray Shoesmith, this character played by Scott Ryan himself, was first seen in a mockumentary called The Magician back in 2005. And I was lucky enough with my then colleague, John Sylvester, to be invited to a screening uh, of The Magician and to take part in a discussion afterwards with Scott Ryan, with the producer, Michelle Bennett, who, of course, was the producer of the Chopper film, and with Nash Edgerton, brother of the very well-known actor and a very fine filmmaker in his own right. Nash had directed The Magician and was very keen on Scott Ryan as an emerging talent at a time when I think the mainstream industry regarded him as a sort of a quirky outsider, a quirky amateur. Edgerton and Michelle Bennett embraced him as a new talent and they were right. It's taken, you know, nearly 15 years to prove that. They've turned out this series called Mystery in Between. It consists of a lot of short episodes of about 25 minutes each. They are totally compelling viewing and it's nothing to sit down and watch, you know, four or five or six of them at a sitting. It's just that good. It's very violent, but it's it's sort of black comedy, but enormously touching. It's got a big heart because at the centre of it, we have Ray Shoesmith, the suburban hitman who has a conscience, who has a daughter, a young daughter that he's very fond of and he's sharing custody of his daughter and he has various romances along the way and we see the flip side of a man who will shoot another bad guy in cold blood or hot blood at midnight and when he goes home to have a shower, we'll see a ladybird crawling up the shower curtain and gently pick it up and put it outside so that it doesn't come to any harm. It manages to get away with that sort of drama. It's a work of brilliance and I really hope they're going to do more of it or that 
Scott Ryan manages to do something equally clever and effective. Speaking of clever and effective, Animal Kingdom. Now, a good decade before Mr. In-Between, Animal Kingdom hit the big screen and later the little screen. It's a work of fiction, but it's a thinly veiled version of the Wall Street killings and the aftermath of the Wall Street killings and of the enormous clash of two violent forces, that being the crooks who did the Wall Street killings and the sort of rogue coppers that prompted the killings by killing one of the crooks and who hunted down the guilty parties. It's not an historical documentary by any means. It's a work of fiction, but it is based clearly on those events. It takes some of the characters and sort of plays with the idea of these brooding, dangerous people uh, who have younger brothers and sisters and so on, and their matriarch, who in real life is Kath Pettengill, who's well known to most of our listeners, but in Animal Kingdom, uh, they called her Smurf, and it was a part played very effectively by Jackie Weaver, who, rather like Eric Banner in the film Chopper, used the role as a springboard at a fairly mature age to show her talents off to a wider audience and her performance in Animal Kingdom got her roles in Hollywood and elsewhere, and uh, deservedly so. Having said that, I'd say it was just such a highly effective series, so well written and so well made and so well directed that Jackie Weaver was lucky to play the part because I think there are several actors who really could have made a meal of what was a peach of a role. And now we get to Two Hands. Now, Two Hands was set in Sydney in the 1990s, work of fiction, again, based loosely on probably people who were around in the 1990s. The great thing about Two Hands was that it showed off the talents of a then a new emerging actor called Heath Ledger, who was then just a a kid out of acting school in Perth. This was really the role that caught our attention. He joined on screen the veteran Brian Brown and they starred together in this crackerjack sort of black comedy crime yarn which was set in inner Sydney. There's violence, senseless and otherwise. There's the predatory worthlessness of the criminal classes. There's robberies, there's car chases. And, of course, the good guy being Heath Ledger gets the beautiful girl. There's even a bit of a sort of supernatural action. But in between all that, there are these killer performances by Heath Ledger making his entrance and by an older actor, Brian Brown, who then and now really is something special. Ledger plays the part of a 19-year-old nightclub promoter called Jimmy and Brown unforgettably plays a very heavy veteran crook called Pando. And these are two of the finest crime characters written in this country, right up there with Eric Banner as Chopper and David Wenham as the no-hoper petty crook, junkie, spit in that excellent film made in Queensland, Gettin' Square. The plot of Two Hands involves small-time Jimmy 
losing 10 grand belonging to big time Pando when two street kids pinch his bag while he's having a swim. A very, very Sydney setup. And so poor little Jimmy decides he has to rob a bank to pay back the money or he's going to turn up very dead. What could possibly go wrong? Well, only everything. Very fine film, stands the test of time. Catch it if you can. While you're looking for some older stuff, if anybody can get their hands on a great ABC series called Phoenix, it's right up there. It was made in 1993. I think you can get it on YouTube. It's based loosely on the Russell Street bombings and the subsequent inquiry into the Russell Street bombings. It's a gritty depiction of high-level criminal investigation, obviously written by people who have gained a deep knowledge of police technique, procedure and politics. Those cast as the cops in this series include Simon Westaway, a guy called Paul Sonkila and Peter Cummins. They bring a gritty authenticity to the roles that probably was a little bit unusual in the 90s. I think it was a bit of a landmark series alongside... Blue Murder. There's a guy who plays the part of Sean Scully. He's the eccentric forensic man who butts heads with the detectives but eventually wins their respect because he goes out and he unearths vital clues and evidence. For those who can find Phoenix, you should also try and find the follow-up series Janus, which is clearly based on a Melbourne crime family. That would be the Pettengill family that also inspired Animal Kingdom. So there you go. They're worthless and they're predatory and they're no good and they're mostly dead, but they have inspired a couple of works of art. The previously unknown in the 90s, Brett Swain, a young actor called Brett Swain, was recruited to play the menacing figure of Mel Hennessy, who became one of the great Australian fictional crime figures. Brett Swain plays the part of a guy called Mel Hennessy, and Mel Hennessy is based squarely on one of the Wall Street figures, the domineering figure of the Wall Street gang, which um, is probably the late Dennis Bruce Allen. The same character, you would think, inspired the part of Monk, played by Ben Mendelsohn so brilliantly in Animal Kingdom. And here we have two roles by two good actors, one of them a very fine actor, that they really made their own in their own way and they are landmark roles. And when you see either of those actors around the place, you immediately think of those parts. They brought so much menace and realism to the job. And now a almost forgotten movie called The Interview, a small Australian film, probably fairly low budget, didn't really get much public recognition. I think the critics loved it. It was Hugo Weaving who has done great work over many decades, but this 1998 suspense piece is without doubt among his best pieces of work. He plays an inscrutable man called Eddie Fleming who is arrested by undercover cops and thrown into an interview room. And the film actually unspools in the tense interview scenes carried out in this interview room. Basically, they set up cameras in an interview room and and just shot film of 
actors posing as police, interviewing Hugo Weaving posing as a suspect. And at first, the audience thinks that the Hugo Weaving character, Eddie, is totally innocent. He's been railroaded. They've picked up the wrong man. Now they're trying to railroad him. They're trying to put the wrong man in jail, etc., etc. And we think, you know, typical corrupt cops. Interestingly, the major police figure is played by Tony Martin. That would be the same one who played Nettie Smith in Blue Murder, not Tony Martin, the uh, comic actor and comedian and so on. It is a great double hand out. We've got Tony Martin as the policeman versus Hugo Weaving as the suspect. And about halfway through the film, we realise that the drama is starting to tilt the other way and we start to have doubts. And the Hugo Weaving character, Eddie, his story starts to have cracks and we end up wondering whether in fact he is guilty and that the police are right after all. It really is a battle of wits. It's a film full of mind games and twists and it's confined almost exclusively to one interview room. It's a great piece of filmmaking. And we'll be back after this. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. And now we move from the screen to books. And personally, they are my favourite way to pass the time in summer. And we've got some old friends among books. I'd have to say that one of the most influential high-end crime books ever written is In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. And In Cold Blood was published in the mid-60s, I think 66 or 67. It is regarded widely as the first non-fiction novel. It was really uh, an invention by Truman Capote, possibly with the help of his childhood friend and collaborator, Harper Lee, who, of course, had her own huge bestseller with To Kill a Mockingbird. It's widely held among critics and readers, that Harper Lee, the very successful novelist, assisted her friend Truman Capote to research and write In Cold Blood, just as it is thought that Truman Capote may well have assisted Harper Lee with To Kill a Mockingbird. And if that is true, well, they both did great work because both books stand head and shoulders above most things written in that era. In Cold Blood was a massively influential book. It did lead to at least one pretty good film version, but its enduring value really is as the written word. As you get older and more sophisticated, you realise that Truman Capote probably took some poetic licence with the story. It probably wasn't scrupulous, neutral journalism. He probably wrote mostly for effect, but the effect is wonderful. It does end up a work of art. It certainly 
caught my imagination when, as a teenager, I read it back in the 70s. I reckon I've owned five or six copies of In Cold Blood. It always gets borrowed by somebody. You never get it back and you end up buying another one. I think it's been through, you know, probably 30 different iterations. It's had a dozen different covers. It really is a work of art and it's haunting. It's effective and it's very easy to summon up lines and scenes from it and they're just unforgettable. I think a generation of crime writers have been influenced by it. But just to go a little bit local, one of the crime writers locally who undoubtedly was influenced by it was our old mate Tom Noble. Tom Noble worked for a Melbourne newspaper back in the 1980s. He was a very uh, proficient police reporter. He made uh, contacts that um, trusted him in the police force and elsewhere. Uh, He left journalism eventually, but he never lost his ability to write very well and to listen very hard and to ask the right questions. He's uh, very good at it. And he wrote two terrific books in, I think, the late 80s. One was called Untold Violence. It was published in 1989, and it really told a lot of the stories of that era. But it has aged very gracefully. It explains elements of crime in Melbourne, including the old-fashioned, now old-fashioned bank robbery, cruise police shootings, the sex for sale trade and a terrorist bombing. But the longest and probably the standout section centres on, would you believe it, our old friend Dennis, Mr Death Allen, the same guy that basically we've referred to earlier who inspired the main figures in both Animal Kingdom and in Janus. Tom Noble tells the real story of Dennis, Mr. Death Allen, or as real as he could get it within the laws of defamation. The book outlines in fine detail the sinister family group, the one we've already talked about in Animal Kingdom, the brutal murders he committed, and the fact that he basically ran a section of Richmond, which is now a very cool and trendy corner of Melbourne. That is the small district of Cremorne, which is that corner of Richmond down near the river, which back in the 80s was very low rent, very cheap to buy into. And Dennis Allen, with his millions of dollars of dirty money, black money made through the drug trade and through running brothels, he owned something like 16 or 17 houses there. And the only good thing about Dennis Allen is that mostly he killed people that were nearly as bad as himself, with some exceptions. And He ended up dying young of, I think, a heart condition brought on by his excessive use of amphetamines and other drugs. And so they say only the good die young, but in this case, a very no good guy died young. And Tom Noble wrote it beautifully. He went on to write an allied book called Wall Street. That was about the Wall Street shootings, which again gave rise to Animal Kingdom Tom Noble's book is the actual factual account and there is no doubt that the people that wrote Animal Kingdom studied it very closely before going off and looking at other stories and other things and doing their own research. So full marks to Tom Noble for two books that are still well worth reading if you haven't read them or well worth rereading 
if you have. Speaking of oldies but goldies, one of the very fine novels about crime in Australia is a book called A Green Light, written by Ray Mooney, published in 1988. Now, it's no wonder to me that some people suggest now and suggested back in the 80s when it was published that Ray Mooney's searing novel, A Green Light, was based on fairly real events and fairly real characters. It might, in fact, be the best insider account there is of late 20th century Australian crime. And I say that because Ray Mooney, although uh, as a young bloke he was an outstanding schoolboy athlete, I think at a private school, maybe St Kevin's or Xavier or somewhere, he was intelligent and educated, but he had a massive fall from grace for a crime of violence. He did long jail time with some of the hardest people in the underworld and he got to know some of them, notably the charismatic and deadly standover man Christopher Dale Flannery, widely known as Rent-A-Kill. And when he first published his novel, A Green Light, back in the 80s, Mooney was still a, a fairly moody, young-ish man who liked to avoid the obvious comparisons between the real Chris Flannery and his fictitious character, Johnny Morgan not to mention some other fairly identifiable characters, one of whom was called Spook, who I believe was based fairly closely on the late Amos Atkinson, who was a gunman and hitman. But as various underworld figures have joined Chris Flannery on the missing list, Mr Mooney is now a very friendly fellow. He's now far more mellow than he used to be. He is a very talented man who has walked both sides of the street He is genuinely a good writer. He writes with insight, with passion, with verve and with conviction. And he also writes with massive inside knowledge. And that is something that you can't fake. The title of the book stands up. It refers clearly to what police and crooks used to call a green light. And this is a particularly... Sydney thing, although it did occur in other states as well. It was a Sydney thing that happened where corrupt police would give pet crooks a green light to go ahead with bank robberies or murders or fraud or whatever was their bag, whatever was their thing, drug importation, providing A, they didn't go murdering citizens, B, they didn't go pointing guns at police or hurting police, and C, They paid their way by paying off corrupt police and corrupt politicians and so on. And so the green light was a very real thing. It's really a title that could easily have been used for blue murder, but Ray Mooney used it for his most excellent novel. It's probably a book that's been half forgotten, but again, it would reward anybody who wants to go out and get it. I think it's still gettable as are many other books that Ray Mooney has done. He's uh, self-published a lot of them or they've been published by small publishing houses. You can still get them and they merit a wider audience. Speaking of a wider audience and speaking of going back in time, I'd like to go back to the 19th century. What's that? It's probably at least 100 and 
40 years to a book called Robbery Under Arms by the author who used the pen name Rolf Boulderwood. Rolf Boulderwood was, in actual fact, Thomas Alexander Brown. Thomas Alexander Brown was a colonial figure. His book, Robbery Under Arms, is rightly regarded as up there with Marcus Clark's For the Term of His Natural Life. Robbery Under Arms is a novel that is still enormously readable, and that is why it has been adapted for the screen so many times. It is sort of a very modern concept. It reads quite well, despite the slightly dated vernacular and characterisation and, and so on. Its construction is very potent, very strong. It begins on death row with a remorseful young bushranger called Dick Marston contemplating the fact that he's going to be hanged in the next few days and telling his life story in flashback. Now, this is a great way to start a book or to start a film or to start a TV series. And because it's such a great way, it's been done quite a lot. The author, Boulderwood, or Brown, was a prolific writer, drawing on his experiences as a Goldfields commissioner and as a police magistrate. And he worked in various places, including the Omeo Goldfields, which, of course, are in the high country of Victoria, and which I think in those days were the most isolated goldfields in Australia and possibly among the most lawless. Nothing else he wrote, and he wrote a lot, matched the sort of narrative drive of this novel, which hasn't been out of print since 1889. There's a book that's been going around for 130 plus years. I recall that my grandfather, Rule, who's been dead for some 50 years, he wasn't a prolific reader, but he once told me that as a young teenage farm labourer, he'd left school very young and he was a working man at the age of 13 or 14, that he had to get up at dawn when the rooster crowed at, you know, six o'clock to go and work carting hay or carting wheat all day in the, in the paddocks and he needed his sleep or else he couldn't work. And he said that he started to read Robbery Under Arms with a candle in a tent or a, a hut or wherever he was camping. And he found it so compelling that he read the book all night and he couldn't stop reading it. And in fact, he just got up at dawn, put on his clothes and went out and worked all day without any sleep rather than not read the book through to its conclusion. And I think that is about as strong a book review as you can get. And I think that Robbery Under Arms has that ability to draw a reader through and make you want to get to the end. And one of the reasons is, of course, is that it starts on death row and you know that by the end of the story, you want to know if he gets hanged or not. Uh, Spoiler alert, he doesn't. There is a last minute pardon and he's not hanged. He serves out his time and uh, becomes a good guy, marries his girl, hood sweetheart and lives a quiet life. It's a great novel. It's got a great title and my grandfather and I thoroughly recommend it. I'd say one more thing about it. One of the contemporary English critics in the 1890s called it a classic. He said, for life and dash and zip and colour, it has no match 
in all Australian letters. But here's the clincher. It's widely held to have inspired an American novel written 15 years later, a novel written in 1902 called The Virginian, and The Virginian is widely regarded as the first ever Western. And that tells you how strong and how powerful and how international robbery under arms really was and still is. And we'll be back after this to finish our story. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for CrimeX Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime. Our time is drawing close. We could go on all day about the good books that you could read, but I think anyone who loves their crime fiction, but not only crime fiction, but just quality fiction, has to read the late Peter Temple. Peter Temple was, in fact, a South African academic. He came to Australia. He wrote prolifically, but he did not start to write novels until he was in his 50s, I think, and he wrote a string of very fine novels, but without doubt, the best two are two that share the same character, a broken-down copper, They are called The Broken Shore, and the other one is called Truth. He won our biggest literary prize, the Miles Franklin, for Truth, but there is no doubt that really it was probably belated recognition for the first book, the prequel, The Broken Shore, which was published three years earlier. It has, of course, you know, a satisfyingly twisty plot, usual crime. Somebody gets killed, don't know who did it, and the broken-down copper works out who did and he becomes the clever guy and the other bad coppers aren't and all the usual stuff. But it's not the plot that worries us. The plot doesn't really matter much. The thing about The Broken Shore and Truth is that it's a masterpiece of uh, characterisation and dialogue and social commentary. And when you put down these very fine novels by Peter Temple, you not only feel that you've read something that's satisfying as a plot-driven narrative, because they are, but more enduringly, long after you've forgotten the plot points and plot twists, and long after you've forgotten the name of the dead guy, you remember the way that Peter Temple writes, and the way that he writes impressed some other very fine writers. And I have to say that the late Les Carline, who was one of Australia's greatest ever non-fiction writers, called The Broken Shore a great Australian novel irrespective of genre. The Courier-Mail critic said, every word in The Broken Shore contains meaning. It's deliciously brutal and spare. It's full of unambiguous violence, prejudice and hatred one moment and cavernous instances of insight and revelation the next. As Graham Blundell said, and Les Carline agreed, it might well be the best crime novel 
published in this country. I don't think anyone was arguing with that. Thanks for listening. Life and Crimes is a Sunday Herald Sun production for True Crime Australia. Our producer is John Burton. If you like the show, leave a five-star rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to know more about these stories, links are in the description of this episode.